You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today we have a couple of firsts. A Russian explorer, which is a first, and Siberia, also a first. I have been wanting to get into the exploration of eastern Russia, so I am excited to dip my toe into these waters. Now, before we get going, let's get this question out of the way. And that is, what and where is Kamchatka? For most of us, the answer is it is a huge area on the eastern edge of the Asian continent in the board game Risk. In the game, Kamchatka is critical because from there you can cross over to Alaska Therefore, it's essential if you want to hold Asia and get those extra armies or invade North America. But this is not risk, and Kamchatka is, to be honest, horribly misrepresented in the game. It's way, way bigger on the risk board than in real life. The other thing that many of us might know is that there is a Kamchatka vodka. It is an awful vodka, but cheap. And did we mention bad? And it has nothing to do with Russia or Siberia. It is made in Kentucky. I imagine someone wanted something that sounded Russian, since Russia loves its vodka. They found Kamchatka on a map, and voila, our crappy vodka has a name that gives it some sort of credibility, if that is such a thing in the realm of crappy vodka. In the real world, Kamchatka is actually the Kamchatka Peninsula. If you look at a map of the world, the Kamchatka Peninsula is pretty easy to spot. It is on the far eastern side of Russia, and looks like a big serrated knife-shaped piece of land that points south into the ocean. To the west of Kamchatka is the Sea of Okhotsk. To the east is the Pacific Ocean. We put a map on our website, explorerspodcast.com, clearly identifying the Kamchatka Peninsula. The map also includes a route that Vladimir Atlasov took while exploring. And speaking of Vladimir Atlasov, today we are going to cover his life. He is best known as the man who explored the Kamchatka Peninsula back in the late 1600s and early 1700s and claimed it for the Russian Empire. So, let us start with some background about the explorations of Siberia and eastern Russia, and then we'll talk a bit about the Kamchatka Peninsula. After that, we'll introduce our explorer, Vladimir Atlasov. But before all that, a few notes. First, I am excited to mangle a new language, Russian. So, I apologize for everything I am going to mispronounce. Some people just have a knack for languages, I am not one of them. Two, this is going to be a single episode, simply because our information about Atlasov is limited. There are no English language books about the guy. Heck, I only found reference to one Russian language book about the man, and that was written in the late 1800s. Some of my information is based upon Russian sources who took notes from that book, which, being written over 100 years ago, makes the accuracy suspect. 
Still, that is what we have, so that is what we will work with. By the way, Atlasov did produce detailed reports, but those have mostly been lost over the centuries. Bonaparte's invasion, the Russian Revolution, World War II, none of it has helped us. It means we have very little primary source material to draw from. So that is it. Let us start out with a little background on Russia and the lands to the east. I want to stress that this is very, very simplistic. Here we go. Today we see Russia as the largest nation in the world, stretching from Europe in the west to the Pacific Ocean in the east. That's more than 4,000 miles. But in the 1500s, Russia was much smaller, only reaching as far as the Ural Mountains. This is where Europe ends and Asia begins. That is only 1,000 miles, which means the lands between the Ural Mountains and the Pacific Ocean is more than 3,000 miles of space. The Russians eyed up these lands to the east. They were rich with timber and fur and minerals. People were asking, how can we go get all this good stuff? And on cue, the Cossacks enter, stage left. Now, a bit about the Cossacks. The Cossacks consisted of multiple groups of mostly Slavic-speaking people from the areas north of the Black Sea and along the Dnieper, Ural, and Volga rivers. This would have been modern-day Ukraine, Georgia, and Kazakhstan. By the 1500s, the Cossacks were allying themselves with the Russians and would push east into Siberia under their great leader, Yermak Timofeyevich. For the Cossacks, it was a way to expand their influence and get rich, all with the support of the Russians. They would move east, subjugate the native tribes, and set up small forts, called Ostrogs, where they would collect a tax, called Yasek, usually paid in furs. This was big business for everyone, and in time, the Cossacks would migrate into these areas and build their own communities in what is now called Siberia. So, the Cossacks forced their way east, exploring the lands before them, eventually crossing the entire continent. The Russian explorer Ivan Mosvitin reached the Sea of Okhotsk in 1639 and became the first Russian to see the Pacific Ocean. The Cossacks then set up forts in the area, but Kamchatka was still over a thousand miles away, way to the north. In 1648, an Ostrog was established on the Anadir River in the area north of Kamchatka. The fort was called Anadirsk, and it would be the first Russian-language settlement in the region. It would also be the Russian administrative and economic hub of the area. By the 1650s, the Cossacks were officially assimilated into the Russian Empire, although they maintained a great deal of independence. Over time, the Cossacks would become a special military element of the Russian Empire, and the Cossack cavalry would be famed for its effectiveness. By the way, going forward, when I say Cossacks, that pretty much means Russians as well as the two peoples really had a symbiotic relationship. It is at Anadirsk that the Russians would first hear about Kamchatka. They were told by the locals that it was a rich area to the south, full of furs and minerals. So what was the truth? Well, let us find out. What was Kamchatka? As noted, Kamchatka is a peninsula, and it is unique in that it is not easy to access. To the west is the Sea of Okhotsk, which is a seven to 800 mile expanse to the Russian mainland. The Sea of Okhotsk is often filled with ice flows, making travel across it very dangerous. To the west of Kamchatka is the Pacific Ocean, and more than a thousand miles of open sea to Alaska. From north to south, Kamchatka is about 800 miles long. The width of the peninsula varies between 60 and 250 miles wide. From north to south, there is a spine of mountains called the Sredini Range, or Central Range. There is another cluster of mountains in the southeast, called the Eastern Range. In between these two ranges is the Central Valley. The Kamchatka River flows through this valley. There are 160 volcanoes on the peninsula, 29 of which are still active to this day, giving it the nickname of Land of Fire and Ice. The mountains in the area are impressive, some as high as 15,000 feet. The peninsula is filled with many rivers and forests. 
From the southern tip, one can see the Kuril Islands. These are a string of islands that stretch out over 800 miles and reach all the way to Japan. The islands are what separates the Sea of Okhotsk from the Pacific Ocean. At this time, the peninsula would have had several ethnic groups, in total numbering about 50,000 people. This was the land that the Russians had been told about, and that takes us to the star of our episode, Vladimir Atlasov. Vladimir Atlasov was born sometime between 1661 and 1664. He is believed to have been born in Veliki Ostuk, a community about 500 miles northeast of Moscow. He is considered a Siberian Cossack, meaning he was part of a Cossack community that settled permanently in Siberia. Otherwise, we know little about the man until approximately 1682. It was said that Atlasov was a hunter and trader, gathering furs, specifically sables. Then he entered the civil service. He would have been approximately 20 years old. Along with other Cossacks, he operated in the far east of Siberia, just west of the Sea of Okhotsk, collecting Yasak from the local people. This was a hard and dangerous life. The locals resented having to pay tribute to people thousands of miles away, and the Cossacks were harsh rulers. Rebellions and skirmishes and ambushes were a way of life. By the way, the Cossacks would generally be outnumbered since they were mostly an occupying force at this time. To their advantage, they had technology, specifically firearms and a long tradition of military service. In addition to pistols and muskets, they used sabers and pikes. In the end, they had modern weapons and were trained to use them. It gave them a big advantage over people who used bows, spears, hatchets, and knives. Also, the local tribes were not always unified, allowing the Cossacks to dominate them despite inferior numbers. So, Atlasov spent his younger adult life collecting tribute as part of the Cossack network in Siberia. He participated in various campaigns against rebellious locals and would rise up in the ranks of his people. Atlasov was reportedly a sensible, energetic, and resourceful man with good organizational skills. He was also known as a brutal man who used violence to maintain strict order amongst his men and the local people. In 1695, Atlasov was appointed commander of the Ostrog at Andirsk, north of Kamchatka. One of the first things that Lasov did was, upon hearing about the Kamchatka River to the south, was to send a reconnaissance party into the region to find out more. The party would be led by a Cossack named Luka Morosko, who would explore down the northeast coast as far as the Tajil River before returning to Anadirsk. He would have noted the potential for furs and mining, and a population consisted mostly of Koryaks, who also occupied much of the area north of Kamchatka. Also, he would bring back some mysterious writings, probably Japanese, which would have intrigued everyone. The reports of the reconnaissance force were encouraging, and Atlasov began to make preparations to check out Kamchatka for himself. Atlasov's main issue was funding. He just wasn't getting any, despite encouragement from his superiors to undertake the expedition. This was a common thing in this era. The government would order this or that and expect funding to come from the local administrators. Atlasov would take it upon himself to get what he needed to conduct his expedition, even taking supplies as needed and leaving IOUs with the victims. This did not endear him to a lot of people. Still, he got what he needed, and on December 14, 1696, he would depart from Anadirsk, heading for the unknown of Kamchatka. The expedition would consist of about 130 to 135 men. This included 60 to 65 Cossacks and 60 Yukagirs, the latter of which were local natives hired by Atlasov. The Yukagirs raised reindeer, and the party would head south riding them. Luka Morozko was the expedition's second-in-command. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. 
With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. The expedition would travel about 400 miles through thick forests and on simple trails and crude roads before reaching the Penzino River, which marks the northern edge of the territory. From here, Atlasov and his men headed down the western coast of the peninsula and then crossed over to the eastern shore, the Pacific Ocean. Here, Atlasov would now have confirmed that Kamchatka was a peninsula. As they went on their journey, they would have approached the local tribes, who are mostly Koryaks, and demand tribute from them. These were mostly small villages, the people thoroughly incapable of fighting off the Cossacks, so they complied. Now, roughly a third of the way down the coast, Atlasov decided to split up the expedition. He would leave Luka Morozko with about half the men on the east coast of the peninsula and lead the rest of the men to the western side. This would allow them to cover more ground. And while that was a good idea in theory, it made each force less formidable to the local Koryaks. So when Atlatsov, with about 60 men, marched to his next shakedown target, a village of Koryaks, well, they weren't quite as scared of him as before. The Koryaks refused to pay any tribute, and a fight broke out. Atlasov and his men would take up a position on a hill along a river. They would fell some trees and erect some crude defensive walls. The Koryak numbers grew, reportedly upwards of 2,000 of them, and in the face of such odds, some of the Yukagirs decided it was in their best interest to abandon their Cossack bosses and join the locals. Atlasov would dispatch a loyal Yukagir on a reindeer to go find Morozko and his detachment of men. After several days of hunkering down and withstanding attacks, Morozko and his contingent would arrive, rescuing their comrades from the Koryaks, who fled the scene after a fight. All said six Russians were dead, or three, depending on what source you read, and a couple of dozen were injured, including Atlasov. Of course, this attack could not go unpunished, which meant retribution was in order. Atlasov and his men would go on a rampage through the area, burning four settlements and looting them of whatever they could find. Atlasov and his men would next cross the mountains and head into the central valley, which the Kamchatka River flowed through. The valley was, relatively speaking, heavily populated. The river meant an abundance of wildlife, including salmon and bears. By the way, the Kamchatka brown bear is huge, rivaling the famed Kodiak bears of Alaska. They stand 8 to 10 feet tall and weigh 14 to 1,500 pounds, and that is just on average. The early explorers, including Atlasov, noted that they were not dangerous and generally ignored humans. In the valley, Atlasov and his men would erect a 40-foot wooden cross at the confluence of what is now the Kamchatka and Krestovka rivers. Forty years later, the cross would be found by a later explorer, who reported there were still inscriptions on it. I will tell you what it said, but I want to note that there is a year listed on the inscription. However, the Russian calendar at this time counted years from the creation of the world, which is 5,509 BCE in the eyes of the West. I just wanted to mention that so when the year is noted, it just doesn't completely throw you. Anyhow, the writings on the cross said, quote, 7205 the year, July 18th of the day, put this cross, Pentecostal Vladimir Atlas, with the good 65 men, end quote. Not the most clear writing, but you get the idea. At Lossov and a group of men had raised the cross, essentially claiming the lands for Russia and God. So, in the Central Valley in July 1697, Atlasov would encounter the Edelmans, one of the major ethnic groups living on the peninsula. 
The Edelmans had villages of two to 300 people on average, and would have numbered between 12 and 25,000 at this time. The Edelman greeted Atlasov and his expedition cordially, and offered them gifts and tribute. The Russians would make a pact with one of the bands, and conduct raids against their enemies, even burning one rival village. The Cossacks also got involved in a major skirmish with some Koryaks from the north, who had stolen some of Atlasov's reindeer. They would kill 150 of the Koryaks in a single battle. Atlasov would later say of the fight, quote, We fought day and night, and with God's mercy and sovereign happiness, they were beaten. Koryak, about a hundred and a half people, and their deer were beaten. End quote. After finishing their exploration of the Central Valley, the Cossacks would head back to the west coast of the peninsula. At the Ichu River, which is on the western side of the peninsula, and about three quarters of the way down the coast, Atlasov would stop and set up winter camp on a fortified island. It is at this time that Atlasov would get word from the local tribesmen about a strange man who was being held prisoner in a nearby village. Intrigued, Atlasov sent for him. The man's name was Dembi, and he was a Japanese fisherman who had been shipwrecked in Kamchatka. The meeting between Dembi and Atlasov would be the first recorded encounter between a Russian and a Japanese. By the way, Atlasov did not know what nationality Dembi was. He probably thought he was from India or China, as it is unlikely that Atlasov had even heard of Japan. India and China, on the other hand, were famous for their exotic goods throughout the world, even Siberia. After wintering at the Ichu River location, Atlasov would head south along the western coast that spring. Dembi, the Japanese refugee, would come with the expedition. Atlasov and his men would reach the southern tip of Kamchatka later that spring or summer. We don't know the specific date. But we know that from the tip of the peninsula, he would have seen islands in the distance. These islands, called the Kuril Islands, stretch out to the southwest, going all the way to mainland Japan, about 800 miles away. In this area, Atlasov would encounter another of the region's ethnic groups, the Ainu. The Ainu were of Japanese descent and lived in the southern part of the peninsula as well as on the Kuril Islands. In typical Cossack fashion, the two sides would get into a fight, the Russians killing 50 of the Ainu. Otherwise, nothing much is recorded for the rest of the year until the Russians make it back to their winter base at the Ichu River. However, by this time, Atlasov and his men appeared to have been wearing down. They had been gone for almost two years, and supplies were running low, including gunpowder and ammunition. Food was also a huge issue, and malnutrition was a real threat. Thus, Atlasov would send 28 of his Cossacks back to the Central Valley to spend the winter with their Edelman allies. When the warm weather returned in the spring of 1699, Atlasov would make plans to head back to his home base in the north. He would split up his men at this point, with one group remaining and building an ostrog called Verne Kamchask on the Kamchatka River. Atlasov saw this as a key location, as it would allow the Cossacks to collect tribute from the populous Central Valley. Atlasov would return to Anadirsk in July of 1699. With him were 15 Cossacks, four Yukagirs, and Denby, the Japanese sailor. Atlasov's return would quickly be recognized as something unique, and thus he was ordered to go to Moscow and report directly to his superiors at the Siberian Order. The Siberian Order, by the way, was the official government agency that dealt with all things related to the lands east of the Urals. Denby would accompany Atlasov on his journey to Moscow, which we should note was not a simple thing. This was 3,500 miles or so, through some pretty rough and wild terrain. Atlasov would reach Moscow, no specific date on when, and the experts at the Siberian Order would quickly interview him about his expedition. The Order was quite happy with what they heard. Atlasov provided the agency with all sorts of stuff, including information on Kamchatka's climate, geography, topography, and details on the various ethnic groups. There was also information on the flora and fauna and wildlife. 
It was noted that Atlasov was a man of little education, but he had a remarkable mind and was a great observer. It allowed him to provide information that would make the Russian government very happy. In February of 1701, Atlasov would meet with Tsar Peter the Great, who was very interested in the new lands that Atlasov had claimed for the empire. Kamchatka and the nearby lands of Japan offered a new and unique opportunity for the empire. Atlasov would be rewarded for a service with a promotion, called Golova, or Cossack Head, and be appointed by the Siberian Order as the leader of the newly conquered territory of Kamchatka. Now, before we send Atlasov back to the east, one note, and that is regarding Dembi, our Japanese fisherman. He would, as you can imagine, be a source of great curiosity. Once he arrived in Moscow, the Siberian Order quickly deduced that he was Japanese. They would, of course, ask him all sorts of questions, and he would even have a personal meeting with the Tsar. After all of that, he would be sent to St. Petersburg to teach Japanese. By this time, he knew how to speak and write both Japanese and Russian. Demby asked to be returned to Japan, but his request was denied. He would live at least another 15 to 20 years, still in St. Petersburg, and after that, nothing is known of him other than he never left Russia. He is known as the father of Japanese language education in Russia, a strange thing for a poor fisherman from Japan. So, with his new promotion in hand, Atlasov went about setting up a new expedition to Kamchatka. This would be focused on firmly entrenching and expanding the power of the Russian Empire on the native population. Atlasov would head east with a hundred men, four small cannons, weapons, gunpowder, and other trade goods. He was given little money for the expedition by the Siberian Order. We mentioned this earlier in the episode, the annoying habit of the Russian bureaucracy to tell someone to accomplish something but not give them the money to do it. Instead, Atlasov was given papers to present to the various regional governors along the way and have them provide him the stuff he needed, such as food, boats, horses, and wagons. This was something that sometimes worked and sometimes did not. 100 men with weapons and cannons and supplies required a lot of support. Unfortunately, the further east the expedition went, they would get less and less cooperation. Then, after one particularly frustrating encounter with a local governor, the expedition would come upon a caravan carrying Chinese goods bound for Moscow. With supplies hard to come by, Atlasov's men, which now included a large contingent of Cossacks, decided to take a bunch of stuff. Whether Atlasov took part in this looting is disputed. Some sources strictly blame his men, while others say Atlasov was in on the thing the whole time. Which, by the way, would not have been out of character for him. If you recall, he had done these kinds of things earlier when he needed supplies, just taking stuff from merchants and giving out IOUs to be paid at a later date. Now, robbing the local natives was one thing, but robbing a prominent merchant who had friends in high places was another. It didn't take long for an arrest order to be issued for Atlasov and his men. Thus, in May of 1702, Vladimir Atlasov would be arrested along with ten of his Cossacks. Atlasov would spend the next four and a half years in prison, and then, suddenly, he would be released in 1707 and be restored to his rank as Cossack head. After that, he was dispatched to Kamchatka as the region's new boss. The reason for Atlasov's release was that Kamchatka was in chaos, and the Russian government needed someone to step in and make things right. They figured Atlasov was the man to do it. He would return to Kamchatka and find it in an ugly mess. The Cossacks and Yukagirs he had left in the Central Valley were ambushed by a thousand Koryaks, and all of them killed. A Cossack force would retaliate by coming down to the peninsula and burning and killing without mercy. In short order, the natives were fighting with each other and the Cossacks, and the Cossacks were terrorizing the people, pretty much riding around wherever they wanted and doing whatever they wanted. The Russian leaders were mostly ineffective, the violence escalating each year, with things getting ugly. An Ostrog was burned to the ground by the Edelmans with all of the people, including women, being killed, 
and whole groups of tribute collectors would just go missing. And to top it off, the Cossacks were starting to fight with each other, men rebelling when they did not like the orders of their superiors. The land needed a strong hand, thus Atlasov was sent in. Atlasov would arrive in Kamchatka and immediately start to crack down not just on the local people, but his Cossacks as well. Unfortunately for Atlasov, the Cossacks were now accustomed to a free hand and did not like his harsh rule. Thus, in December of 1707, they would mutiny and toss him in prison. The men would write a letter to Atlasov's superiors, saying their actions were caused by Atlasov's, quote, evil deeds, end quote. Atlasov would eventually escape and make for another Ostrog on the Kamchatka River. The region would eventually get a new leader, but Atlasov would remain in the area, although exactly in what capacity we are not sure likely as a commander of some kind, but not the commander. By the way, the new commander would prove to be ineffective, and the Cossacks, tired of strict rules, regulations, and punishments, rebelled again, killing the new commander. It was said that the rebels, worried that Atlasov would come after them, plotted his death. One story says the rebels sent three Cossacks to Atlasov, supposedly with a message from his superiors. When his guard was down, the three men attacked, killing Atlasov. Another story says the building he was in was set on fire while he slept. Still other stories say that there was a big melee, with Atlasov dying while fighting the mutinous Cossacks. No matter, Vladimir Atlasov was dead. The year was 1711. He would have been between 37 and 41 years old. So, let us take stock in today's episode and do some wrap-up. First, regarding the Kamchatka Peninsula. Not long after Atlasov's death... The Russians would set up a naval route between the city of Okhotsk and the Taijo River in Kamchatka. It was a week-long voyage across the sea, roughly 500 miles, underlying the difficulty reaching the peninsula. By the way, if you went by land from Okhotsk, it was a 1,300-mile trip to get to the same place on the peninsula. That included 800 miles just to reach Kamchatka. Again, it only underscores the remoteness of the area. Kamchatka would remain a lawless and chaotic region for decades, before things were brought under control in the 1730s. The city of Petropavlos Kamchatsky was founded in 1740. Located in the southeast corner of the peninsula, the city would provide Russia with a port on the Pacific Ocean, valuable because of the fishing and whaling interests in the region, as well as the territorial expansion opportunities in what is now Alaska. As for the chaos and lawlessness that had plagued the region, it would pretty much end by the 1750s. A smallpox epidemic would hit the area in the 1760s, further decimating the population. Due to all of this fighting and disease, the indigenous population would fall to about 3,200 people by 1812, down from 25 to 50,000 a little over a century before. The number of people of Russian descent was only about 2,500. With the declining population, the need to police the region by the Russian government lessened, and then Kamchatka's importance was further diminished when Alaska was sold to the United States in 1867, as the proximity between the two areas no longer mattered to the Russian government. By 1900, the peninsula's population was a mere 7,500 people, roughly two-thirds being indigenous natives, while the other third were Russian. After World War II, Kamchatka was declared a military zone by the Soviets and was closed to civilians. This did not change until 1989. Today, Kamchatka has a population of about 320,000 people, roughly 60% of the people in the capital city of Petropavlos Kamchatsky. The peninsula's big draw is now its nature. 160 volcanoes, six world heritage sites, striking flora and fauna, abundant wildlife, including bears, wolves, foxes, lynx, sables, salmon, and much more. It is a vibrant and beautiful land. Of course, there is tragedy to all this. The Russian conquest of Kamchatka, 
nearly brought destruction on some native cultures, including the Edelman. The region went from upwards of 50,000 inhabitants to a tenth of that within a century. It is a pattern too often seen throughout the world in the wake of our explorers. So, that is my quick history of Kamchatka after the death of Atlasov in 1711. Let's wrap up with a few notes about the star of our show. Vladimir Atlasov was an accomplished man, energetic, resourceful, and effective, but he also had a reputation for being harsh and uncompromising. It made Atlasov successful, but it also put a target on his back. His willingness to take what he wanted to get things done would get him imprisoned, and his rigid and harsh rule would ultimately get him killed. So, let's finish by listing a few of the big accomplishments of Vladimir Atlasov. First and foremost, he is the European discoverer of Kamchatka. He mapped it, establishing for the Western world the what's and the where's of the land. In doing this, he became the first recorded person to go the entire length of the Kamchatka Peninsula. And let's not forget, he is the first European to discover the Kuril Islands, which are just off the southern tip of Kamchatka. He established the first Ostrog on the peninsula and set the stage for the Russian domination of the region. And this last thing is really the lasting legacy of Atlasov. He brought Kamchatka under the dominion of the Russian Empire, something that has not changed to this day. In the end, he is remembered as one of the great Cossack explorers of the era. In addition to all of that, he is remembered in a few ways. There is Atlasov Island, off the southern tip of Kamchatka. Also in Kamchatka, there is a volcano named after the guy. So that is it, the life of Vladimir Atlasov, the Cossack who opened up the Kamchatka Peninsula for the world. I hope you have enjoyed today's story. It is great to add a tale of Russian exploration to our catalog of episodes. Thank you again for listening. I wish you good health, and I will see you next time. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.